Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. My name is Caroline Roberts, your Radio Free Acton host, and on today's show, we'll be covering three different topics. First, Acton staff members Paul Bonicelli and Trey Dimsdale will be speaking with Greg Forster, who serves as the director of the Oikonomia Network and a visiting assistant professor of faith and culture at Trinity International University. Greg will be speaking about the legacy of Whitaker Chambers, a Soviet spy who converted to Christ. This talk is a preview for his upcoming lecture at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids on February 22nd. Then, Dave Hebert, professor of economics at Aquinas College, will be joining us for an econ quiz segment on income inequality in light of the recent company surges, such as Apple and Amazon. Lastly, on our upstream segment, Bruce Walker talks with David Hogsett, professor of literature and writing at Grove City College about the fiction of the late Ursula K. Le Guin. So, without further ado, let's jump into our first segment. Hello, this is Paul Bonicelli, Director of Programs and Education at the Acton Institute. And uh, we're here to interview an upcoming guest for our Acton lecture, uh, lecture series that we hold uh, at noon. Uh, this one will be February 22nd, 2018. It's called Division Point, Whitaker Chambers Witness for the 21st Century. And our guest lecturer is going to be Dr. Greg Forster. He is head of the Economia Network and he's visiting assistant professor of faith and culture at Trinity International University in Illinois, uh, right near Chicago. And uh, Greg is a, a very old friend of Acton Institute, and uh, with me is Trey Dimsdale, who's director of our program outreach. We work together quite closely on a number of projects uh, that have to do with the nexus of faith and liberty. And so the subject of this upcoming lecture about Whitaker Chambers is indeed someone that speaks very much to uh, that nexus of faith and liberty. Greg, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Well, uh, you know, you and I have talked offline about this, and and um, I um, I think of Whitaker Chambers uh, as someone that everybody uh, in the United States, certainly anybody who cares about what the role of communism meant in the world and the struggle between liberty and communism, and in particular the struggle between a Christian understanding uh, of who we are and how we should live versus communism— People ought to know who Whitaker Chambers is and what he did and why his faith motivated him. So before we get down into a lot of details, I just want to ask you, what is your kind of longish elevator speech about why Americans, and particularly Christians, should know who Whitaker Chambers is? I think one reason is because his Christian insight about the political crisis of the advanced modern world translates beyond the Cold War, uh, that the Cold War may be over, but the ongoing crisis of how we can live uh, as free people and as humane, uh, decent people uh, in a modern world that's constantly being upended by technological change and economic development, uh, an unstable cultural uh, environment that uh, leads people to often uh, embrace, you know, shallow or extremist uh, ideologies. How can we maintain a humane uh, and uh, uh, and civilized way of life in this kind of chaotic environment? His Christian insight into that uh, is goes far beyond the Cold War. But uh, I would also add that uh, while many people view communism as old news, uh, I think it continues to haunt us. 
Uh, if you look at recent events, whether that's um, the media coverage of North Korea during the Olympics or uh, a little ways back, uh, Colin Kaepernick with his uh, protest of the, uh, uh, at the uh, national anthem, uh, the very first day he did that, he showed up to his press conference uh, to talk about it wearing a shirt that gl- glamorized Fidel Castro. Uh, and he was uh, subsequently confronted by a sports reporter from the Miami newspaper when they played uh, uh, the Dolphins. Uh, and uh, Kopernik then defended Castro uh, to this, uh, to this uh, Cuban refugee who had become a sports writer for the Miami newspaper. So I think these battles over communism are not at all in the past. They're very much of the present. Uh, and I think as someone who wants to see, you know, more national attention paid to the problem of, uh, of police brutality, it's just uh, I lament the fact that we, get, uh, we, we haven't yet uh, figured out how to uh, speak to each other about communism in a way that doesn't just trip everything up. And then the third reason I think everyone should know about Whitaker Chambers is because I think particularly he, uh, understanding his story might help us to overcome some of our uh, polarization where we have difficulty understanding each other. I think Chambers, as a person who set out uh, to uh, champion the poor and to fight oppression, and whose life story uh, led him to turn away from communism and to embrace uh, uh, freedom and democracy as in the interests of the poor and the oppressed, uh, can help bridge divides, I think, between the left and the right, who often uh, just don't know how to talk to each other and, and or make any sense to each other. I think that's exactly right. You know, um, I have told students uh, and and people that I've talked with in the past about um, the importance of of chambers, and I've told them if you truly want to understand what communism is, there are few books. Uh, this biography that can do a better job of explaining to you very fundamentally what communism is. And I'd like to ask you about um, the way he describes it, because he does a very good job of talking about the materialistic mindset. And that's one of the reasons why communism Mm -hmm. won't Mm -hmm. go away is because as long as people reject uh, the God of the Bible, the God of Western civilization, the Judeo-Christian understanding of God, um, they will be susceptible to a materialistic mindset. Am I right on that? I, I certainly think it's true uh, that the question is what Whitaker Chambers said it is, which is God or man. Uh, that he said the the modern world has forced uh, this question to the forefront in a way that it has never been at the forefront before. Uh, God or man? Uh, where are we going to look to solve our problems? Do we think that human ingenuity by itself, without God, can solve our problems? If we think that, we are going to become, eventually, monsters. We're going to do terrible things to each other because it will be justified if, by doing those things, we can solve our problems. Uh, If you think about, you know, all the weight of millions of people in the future who could live in a utopia if only we kill a few inconvenient people now, uh, without God to, uh, to ground the image of God and to say certain things are just intrinsically wrong because they're anti-God, uh, it's going to be impossible in the end to escape the logic that you can sacrifice a few people today to save all the millions of future generations uh, from continuing to live with the problems that we, that we have with the oppression and the, and the poverty. Uh, now, I think one of the challenges is to take that lesson out of the Cold War context 
where in the Cold War it's West versus East, whereas today, you know, the gospel is going forward with power all around the world, uh, and it's really not a Western thing. Uh, but the, the, the confrontation between trusting God as the person who is the solution to our problems versus trusting uh, what Chambers called the almighty mind and having a, the vision of almighty mind, uh, the idea that we, through our ingenuity, can solve our own problems is going to always make us monsters wherever we embrace it. Right. Greg, this is Trey. Um, it, as... Um as we were we were discussing before before the st- tape started rolling for this uh this is something that you didn't read uh early on in your your uh career or your intellectual development um and that's really the case for for a lot of um a lot of young people why why is it that that this is not um something that's either in the freedom movement or you know kind of in the the Christian world with people who care about the the order of society why is this something that's not 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 as commonly read as some some other sources I think there are two reasons one is because it is viewed through the lens of the cold war uh and people view Whitaker Chambers as a figure from the past uh who doesn't speak to our present reality but I think if if you actually read the book, you'll find there's so much depth of insight that is still completely relevant, uh, even aside from the fact that communism continues to be a critical factor in our world. Uh, just the, the insight that we have to make a choice between trusting God to solve our problems and thinking that we have the power to solve our problems ourselves, that has so much wider application. Uh, it's a it's a filter for understanding the danger of all extreme ideologies, that all all extreme ideologies are ultimately some form of attempting to use human power to solve human problems rather than trusting that God is eschatologically the, the final answer to all human problems. Uh, and I think the other reason is because Chambers himself never fit very easily into any of our uh, ideological categories. So um, near the end of his life, after his uh, tumultuous confrontation with Alger Hiss, uh, he retired from public life. He had been uh, working for Time Magazine for nine years, and for some time he had been a senior editor there. So it was a very important part of America's uh, public conversation. Uh, and then he retired to his farm, and eventually William F. Buckley convinced him to contribute to National Review, but he never felt at home there. Uh, and in a series of letters, he ultimately explained to Buckley why he felt he had to resign from National Review, uh, and that was because uh, he wasn't quite in accordance with uh, with their intellectual project. Uh, Chambers identified himself as a man of the right, but he never called himself conservative. In fact, from the beginning of Buckley organizing the conservative movement, Chambers uh, said, I'm not conservative. Uh, and the reason is because uh, he believed that human freedom uh, giving people the opportunity to invent new technologies and to develop uh, the economy uh, would create a sort of constant social churn that uh, made it uh, impossible to preserve old ways of life. Uh, and he felt that conservatism uh, uh, really was, was, uh, was assuming that you could have both freedom and sort of continuity without a dramatic change of life. And uh, Chambers said, no, the, uh, the, the old ways of life are, are going. And because Chambers didn't really have that deep uh, consonance with most of the people in National Review, 
he never fully gelled with the conservative movement. And so I think the conservative movement has not preserved him the way it has preserved so many of its other heroes, uh, like William F. Buckley. Uh, I think uh, Chambers doesn't fit neatly into our categories. He's not libertarian, but he's also not uh, a classic conservative. Uh, and I think that's part of why I hope he can speak to people across uh, ideological divides. Right, and and you you hit on this a little bit a little bit earlier in one of your responses to Paul's question, but I think about um, y- you know some of the critics of communism that are contemporaries um, or close contemporaries, and you know I think about um, Mises's short essay, the econ- the problem of econ- economic calculation in the socialist commonwealth. It's a critique of communism, but it's a very intellectual, academic morally distant uh, critique. And um, Chambers stands out, uh, you know, kind of in his generation or that, that general era. Um, what is it that, that uh, you know, you, you would see, like if, if, we, if, we, if we use Whitaker Chambers as an as a example of someone who's winning the moral argument, what do you see as being concrete takeaways for us when we're engaging um, or engaging people of our, our own contemporaries who are um, trying to make these moral arguments that are on the other side of, of uh, freedom and liberty? Well, I think that's uh, one reason why I'm interested in Chambers reaching across uh, polarization uh, to speak to people. I think um, one thing that, we, that, that I hope Chambers' story could uh, highlight for people is the fact that the narratives, the moral narratives of the 20th century expansion of state power, even in uh, the United States and other generally market-oriented societies, the, the narratives that were used to justify the expansion of state power were deeply materialistic. And so you don't have to be a libertarian and you don't have to say that we should have no safety net at all in order to see that the whole ideology of the New Deal and the Great Society is driven by the idea that human ingenuity can solve our problems. Uh, And in fact, if you go back and you actually listen to the things that were said in the 1930s and in the 1960s about the expansion of state power and how we were going to build a better world, uh, there was this very, very deep confidence that we human beings have the power to solve our own problems without God. And uh, we can debate, you know, whether uh, what kind of uh, safety net programs work and uh, how the safety net should work, uh, but there needs to be a decisive repudiation uh, from our friends on the left of this underlying idea that if only we give power to the smart people, we will be able to solve our problems without God. At the same time, I also think that Chambers can challenge uh, my friends on the right uh, with some blind spots that they've had, such as, for example, the legacy of, of racism and discrimination, which is not just over because we passed civil rights laws, so now we all get to forget about that. Uh, Chambers has this very deep, powerful awareness uh, of the injustice of racism. There's this wonderful passage in which, uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as a communist living underground, uh, he refuses to pay a lo- the lower wage uh, 
uh, to a, a black housekeeper, right? There was a white wage and a black wage. Uh, and and uh, he he wouldn't pay the black wage uh, because that was demeaning. He paid more than that, and and he said, uh, by acting as a communist must, I acted as a Christian should. Uh, and so I think uh, uh, chambers can help us remember that public policy details are not the only thing that's at stake in discussing what kind of society we want to have. Uh, just as. Uh, we can set aside uh, the sort of the, the existence of a safety net and say, but the underlying idea should not be that we have the power to save ourselves through our own ingenuity. Similarly, we also don't want public policy details to, to become the only thing we care about on the right and say, well, if we just get the right public policy, uh, then we don't have to worry about things like the legacy of 200 years of slavery and racism. Uh, well, because that's just another form of the same fallacy, that if we can just get the public policy right, we will have solved our problems. Well said. Uh, Greg, I've got one more question for you before we have to go. Um, this biography, Witness, of Whitaker Chambers, uh, that you're going to talk about, this is an exciting book to read, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. It's a gripping Tell story. Tell me about that. And well, there's so many twists and turns, it's, uh, it, 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 but it's not just an espionage story. It's also a gripping personal story. Uh, he has a moving portrait of his life growing up in a very unhappy household, uh, and there's this, uh, uh, there's this crisis where his brother wants to commit suicide, and he attempts to persuade his brother that uh, although the world is awful now, it will be better when communism has uh, has won its victories. And his brother says, "No, communism's just another trick, like all the other uh, like all the other tricks. And you're just a fool, like all the other fools, uh, for believing in communism." And he has this prolonged period of struggle, attempting to prevent his brother uh, from committing suicide. Uh, and then there's his uh, struggle to raise his children. Uh, how do I raise my children in a way that protects them from? Uh, the the corruption of the vision of Almighty Mind. Uh, there's so much more to it than just an espionage thriller, and then uh, later the political thriller of his confrontation with Elger Hiss uh, in in congressional chambers and courtrooms. Uh, it's a personal drama, and it's a religious. Uh, it's also a book of religious devotion. Uh, there are passages of this book that rival Augustine's Confessions for their. Uh, just powerful window into the life of a person who is coming to God. Uh, you know, it's sort of breathtaking when uh, he has this uh, moment where uh, he and his wife are going to abort their, their first child, because as good communists, that's the right thing to do. And of course, as good communists, they know that abortion is, is morally insignificant. Uh, but then they can't do it, and they don't know why. Right. They, they can't bring themselves to kill their, their, their baby, but they don't know why. And then as the baby grows up, Chambers has this moment where he looks at her in her, her high chair uh, and she, as, as he puts it, she contemplatively just drops her food on the floor and looks at it and, and, and meditates on it. Uh, and he, lo- he watches her and he sees her ear. He sees the intricacy of the human ear. And he says that ear could not have existed by accident. It is so intricate and well-designed that it could not be there by accident. And this is kind of the break in his life that begins him on this long and painful journey back from, uh, back from his, his atheistic hell uh, and finally into uh, Christian faith. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, and it's so well-written because he worked at time for nine years learning how to, you know, uh, learning how to write 
really, really well journalistically. Uh, so he's an extremely skilled writer, and he does a great job at crafting the story. I think you're right. It, it reads like a novel. It reads like a biography. It it reads like uh, philosophy for the layman. Uh, it's not full of jargon. It is a real person talking to real people. Well, Greg, thank you so much for this. We are really looking forward to having you here. You're a favorite around here, as you know. You're with us at Acton University every summer, and uh, we're so glad to have you for our lecture series February 22nd uh, at noon. And if you're interested, please do visit acton.org, A-C-T-O-N.org, and register and come join us for lunch and for Dr. Greg Foster's uh, lecture. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for having me. Welcome to Econ Quiz, an occasional feature of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute. Today is Wednesday, February 7th. I'm your host, John Caritas. Econ Quiz is where we pose a real-world economic question to a real-world economist, which is a nice segue into introducing today's guest, David Hebert, a professor of economics at Aquinas College in Grand Rapids. Welcome back to Econ Quiz, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me, John. Today I'd like to talk about the very uh, uh, broad topic of income inequality. And a way to get into that is uh, by starting with an article that appeared in The Guardian about a week or so ago. And the headline reads, Jeff Bezos adds billions to his fortune as Amazon reports profit surge. It follows up with this. Amazon share price soared over 4% while Apple shares wobbled despite quarterly revenues. Alphabet or Google announced a loss. And you read further down in the article, and it says, Bezos owns about 16% of the company, that is Amazon, and has already added $20 billion to his fortune this year, bringing his total net worth to more than $119 billion. So here's the question. Why, after all of these years of being lectured to by the left about income inequality and what a problem it is, and after seeing movements like Occupy Wall Street and all of these criticisms of the 1% who control all of this economic might, why do I have this impression that people like Jeff Bezos and Tim Cook and name a dozen other tech moguls who have amassed these vast fortunes unseen in world history why do they seem to get a free pass from this sort of criticism? I'm puzzled. Any ideas? Yeah, so what I would start with is to try to discuss what profit actually is and how it's earned in a free society. The only way you can earn profit in a free society is through voluntary exchange. You have to provide value to your customers over and above the cost that it costs you to produce something. Now, in a free society, this is uncontentious. Some people will earn tremendous profits. Other people will earn you know, smaller profits. In some sectors, though, we see the rise of what we could call crony capitalism, where instead of providing value to your customers, you're instead just obeying rules that some D.C. legislature has foisted upon the rest of society. 
So I think it's fair to say that Amazon and Apple are providing trend, tremendous value to millions upon millions of people. And as a result, Jeff Bezos and Tim Cook are tremendously wealthy individuals. But when we look at banks or any type of investment firm, it's true that they're providing value to their customers. But I submit to you that because of all the regulations and the rules that are in place in the banking sector, what's more profitable to the individual bankers is following the rules rather than just simply providing value to customers. So that's a good point. There aren't a lot of uh, crony rules regulating my trip to the Apple store at the mall if I want to buy the latest iPhone. It's a consumer sensation. The value to the consumer is clear. And uh, maybe that's why the consumer says, well, Apple earns that. Not only has Apple earned tremendous profits, they're sitting on, and here's a, a headline from CNBC, Apple's cash pile hits $285 billion, a record. That's cash on hand. That is incomprehensible almost for a, uh, uh, a company to achieve in the market. So w- what you're saying is that people more or less look at Apple as having earned that tremendous profit, whereas the crony game is more about carving out deals with regulators, legislators, and uh, others in Washington and state houses. That's exactly what I'd say. So when we walk into the Apple store, you, know, you walk in with cash or your credit card or however you're going to pay for things. Um, if you're fancy, you're going to use the Apple Pay system because why not? Uh, but when you walk into the store and you purchase something, let's say you buy the brand new $1,000 iPhone, what you are effectively saying is that you would rather have that piece of technology than the $1,000. And that's tremendous value to you. And what Apple is essentially saying is that they'd rather have the $1,000 than the iPhone that they have in stock. And so you have this wealth generation for both parties. With banks, it's a little bit less clear because of all the complicated regulations that we see going into what bankers are allowed to do, what they can do, how they can do credit default swaps and every other complicated financial tool that, frankly, not even I understand. I think what you see tech companies doing with these massive cash balances on hand is preparing for a sort of new regulatory regime where they might have to fork over billions of dollars. Think about Apple and their recent settlement with Ireland and the you know European Union. They're going to lose billions of dollars on that deal. And the same is true with Google. Most of their losses this year are a result of the change in the tax code, not a change in whether or not they're providing services to their, their customers. Yeah, that's a good point. So in the EU in particular, you're seeing more regulatory interest in how these tech firms handle privacy um, and uh, what their financial returns are. Your uh, Google in particular is having a harder time of it over there. So uh, as you say, this is not a uh, uh, f- you know free high-speed lane for them in any respect. It's a changing regulatory uh climate for them, which explains why I believe Google now is one of the uh, biggest spenders on lobbying in D.C. So you're seeing that entire swamp 
thing element now um, overshadowing the tech industry, which heretofore thought they were more or less immune from this sort of thing. Right. I think what we're seeing is that, at least in today's society, which is lamentable and something that I think we should try to stem, is that the way to make money is, is no longer about serving customers, but rather about serving politicians. And that's because of the tremendous power that we've given politicians to regulate basically every aspect of our lives. So if you can influence what rules are written in Washington, D.C., you can write rules that benefit you and you alone and reap tremendous profits. Unfortunately, these profits come at the expense not just of the American taxpayer, but also at the expense of the consumer. We get lower quality products at higher prices than we would if the market were unregulated. Well, I'm sure that those people crowding the Apple stores for the latest, greatest uh, tech gadget uh, would lament that turn of events. So we will watch this one closely and uh, see how it rolls out in the tech industry. So thank you again for being with us today, Dave. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hello and welcome to Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. And today we're going to be talking with David Hogsett from Grove City College about a subject near and dear to my heart, and that's fantasy and science fiction. And uh, recently we have lost some of uh, the biggest names in in writing for science fiction and fantasy, Jerry Purnell, for example. But today we're going to be talking about Ursula K. Le Guin, multiple Hugo and Nebula award-winning authoress and uh, a very much a groundbreaking author in, in, the, in the field of science fiction. Uh, she was light years ahead of uh, some of the other writers who broke out into the mainstream who are extremely influenced by her, including Neil Gaiman, uh, Stephen King, for example. And her list of influences are, are, are pretty remarkable as well, including C.S. Lewis. So... Um, Good morning, David. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am absolutely terrific. We took a couple of weeks off here to uh, nurse nasty bugs that are flying all over the country, but uh, seems to be landing primarily in Grand Rapids. But let's let's talk a little bit about Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, she recently passed away, and uh, she... Uh, she comes from a long line of, of great female sci-fi fantasy writers. And give us a little bit of background on her. I, I, I've read much of her stuff, but it's been decades since I, I've cracked open Wizard of Earthsea and uh, Left Hand of Darkness and uh, watched uh, the adaptations of Lathe of Heaven. Okay, very good. Well, um, she was uh, born in around uh, 1929, if I remember uh, correctly, um, to an academic and um, literary family. Her, her father, um, Alfred Krober, was uh, um, a well-known anthropologist, and her mother um, was also a writer. Um, so she kind of grew up in a, in a literary um, anthropological uh, type of household. Um, and then later in, in her life, she uh, uh, meets and marries uh, Charles Le Guin, who uh, was studying uh, a history and later becomes a history professor. 
Um, and so in, in that sense, she's, uh, for much uh, of her life, she was kind of surrounded by narrative because anthropologists are often trying to um, understand cultures and, and often studies uh, narrative and oral traditions within various cultures, her, her mother being a writer, uh, her husband uh, being a historian who also deals with uh, narrative of human history and so on. Um, and so that really uh, helped shape her imagination and her uh, love for writing. Uh, from early on, she, she was writing and telling stories. Uh, she was always fascinated with uh, storytelling. Um, I think another interesting thing is that her father uh, was a, a cultural and religious relativist, uh, and that shapes a lot of, of her thinking about uh, what does it mean to be human, what does it mean to be a moral person, how does one uh, live a moral life. Um, a lot of her stories kind of deal with uh, difficult decisions and choices that people have to make and, and what are the consequences of those uh, particular choices. Um, and uh, her her father was a member of the uh, ethical uh, culture movement, which was basically a, a non-religious uh, group that was trying to still come up with the moral systems of thought. Um, and in his, his own life, he gravitated towards um, Taoism, uh, and uh, that heavily influenced uh, Le Guin. So you can see a lot of in influences of, of Taoism uh, in her own writing, and she also um, translated um, a copy. Uh, she has her own translation of the Tao Te Ching, um, which I think is kind of interesting. Well, uh, I, I should note at this point that uh, you have written a chapter in an upcoming book. And tell me a little bit of, of, about the chapter. It, it's all on the, the fiction of Le Guin. And um, I, I, I hate to say that something like this is fortuitous, but it, it is very timely that uh, you would write this just prior to uh, her demise. And um, I, I got a chance to read the uh, the chapter that you sent me, and I'm very appreciative of that. Uh, I, I love getting sneak previews of uh, wonderful works of uh, criticism and uh, and commentary. So tell us, what is the name of the book and, and when will it be released? Well, uh, my book chapter is titled uh, The Way of the Fantasist, Ethical Complexities in the Taoist Mythopoeic Fantasy of Ursula Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea. And the book that it will be appearing in uh, is called Teens and the New Religious Landscape, Essays on Contemporary Young Adult Fiction. And that's uh, edited by Jacob Stratman. Uh, I think originally the, the, the idea for the book was uh, to look at uh, issues of post-secularism uh, in uh, children's literature. And the idea there is that um, as we see sort of secularism growing, a lot of people talk about the influences of, of secularism on our culture. Uh, we can we actually also see uh, a movement towards the post secular, where uh, artists and writers and musicians uh, recognizing that there are serious limitations uh, to uh, secularism as a worldview. Uh, largely, uh, um, it, it has a difficult time of explaining uh, imagination, explaining value and beauty and truth, and uh, quite a few people, um, uh, particularly in the humanities, uh, recognize just from everyday experience, yeah, we do experience uh, the metaphysical. We do experience beauty. We do experience truth. Um, uh, and without these things, it's difficult, if not impossible, really to build any kind of uh, civilization. Um, <clears throat> so this movement um, uh, has been labeled post-secularism, uh, post uh, attempts to sort of how do we uh, attempt to express and explore and understand 
um, the non-material aspects of reality and lived experience. And uh, we see this a lot in fantasy literature and science fiction. Even in science fiction, um, like The Matrix, for example, um, one of the key aspects of The Matrix is exploring, well, what does it mean to be a human in a virtual reality? Um, is it better to live in the real or in the virtual? All of these are metaphysical uh, types of questions, uh, philosophical and spiritual and religious questions. So um, this book was uh, attempts to examine, well, how are some writers of uh, young adult fiction and children's uh, uh, fantasy how are they exploring these issues of the post-secular? Um, and, and largely looking at um, how different religious perspectives uh, are being integrated uh, into these narratives. <clears throat> and so I, I proposed uh, to write a book chapter on Taoism uh, in Le Guin's work and focusing in on A Wizard of Earthsea, because that's where it, it, it's expressed pretty clearly, even in the title of, the, of her world, Earthsea is a kind of a, a dualistic Taoist notion. Um, so that's my contribution to, to that uh, book project, is to explore um, how she's uh, integrating uh, Taoism into uh, this particular novel. Okay, well, um, among her um, most well-known works, obviously, are, are the Earthsea novels and uh, the Left Hand of Darkness, which is part of a, uh, one component of a larger universe that she created. And um, my, my, my personal favorite I've, I've read it several times, is The Lathe of Heaven, which deals with uh, unexpected or unanticipated consequences of trying to do good by m manipulating the dreams of a man who become a material reality. So everything that he dreams, he wakes up, and uh, the dreams have become, have become manifest in the real world. And so... Uh, a doctor gets apprised of this and decides that he's going to manipulate the man's dreams to to change everything to the to the good. But every time something good happens, there's the unintended consequence of something really horrible and terrible happening. So it's it's kind of a a, a warning against humanity trying to play God. Yeah, I think so. Uh, definitely, I think she's also exploring issues of um, <clears throat> kind of solipsism or uh, kind of at that time when she's writing it, there's the emerging um, sort of post-modern uh, perspectives that we create our own realities, uh, we create our own truth, and so on, kind of giving rise to, to uh, um, trying to live out relativism. I think what she does so well <clears throat> is uh, uh, she's a... Uh, she writes speculative fiction, um, and, and, her, and her brother called her a, a, a fabulous, where she, all of her fiction deals with the fabulous, the fantastic, the, the speculative in one way or another. And I think in that book, uh, and it, it's a short little book, but it's a clever, very interesting book, um, and I think she's asking the questions, well, what would happen? What would it be like if, in fact, um, our own subjective ideas created or reshaped reality. Now, she, she doesn't do away with reality, obviously. There's still an objective reality, but she does, uh, in the novel, but she does, you know, raise that question, well, what would it be like if, in fact, someone's dreams, their own subjective, uh, um, unconscious mind, uh, actually changed reality? What would that be like? Um, and as you mentioned, um, some aspects are glorious and interesting, but then there's these uh, unattended 
um, consequences. And I think also that's uh, we, uh, maybe from a Christian perspective, we, we would uh, consider that well, uh, sort of raising the question of uh, what would it be like um, if we were to play uh, uh, play God, uh, kind of... Um, Oh, the never-ending story uh, raises that same question as well. Uh, what if you were to uh, write your own fantasy, uh, doing as you wish? That's kind of the command for, uh, in there for Bastion, just do as you wish. Um, and horrible things uh, uh, develop from there. Well, I think in, in from Le Guin's perspective, uh, it's a little bit more of a kind of a Taoist uh, idea that um, everything, ha- uh, according to Taoist perspectives, there's the equilibrium, uh, and the y- which you takes act us back or to act. Wizard of Earthsea. That's right. That's right. Yes. Um, uh, and so there's that idea that if you um, uh, all uh, actions will have contrary uh, reactions. So whatever you do, there has to be some type of attending balancing act. Uh, so if there's inordinate amounts of good. Well, that has to be counterbalanced by in order in um, amounts of evil. Uh, so I think that's also kind of happening in the lathe of heaven, where there's these attempts to do these good things, but they're counterbalanced by these horrible things as well. I, I, I find this this entire conversation fascinating because, uh, as I said, I mean, I, I I was thoroughly immersed in in science fiction and fantasy throughout the the 70s, and uh, I read everything that Harlan Ellison wrote about Le Guin as well as reading everything by Le Guin I could get my hands on. Um, and one of the things in your essay, and I'm, I'm just going to read it verbatim because there, there's no point having this wonderful text in front of me with a, uh, and trying to paraphrase it, and this takes us to the Earthsea novels. And those, those are generally considered to be young adult novels uh, there, as you put it so succinctly, it is there. It's a the a Wizard of Mercy is a Bildungsroman. It uh, tells the story of a young man who is learning to become an adult, and most people w- would pass off adolescent literature as being, uh, you know, sexy vampires and and what have you, but. Uh, you write that Le Guin takes adolescent readers seriously and she treats their main concern, growing up and learning how to be an adult in a world that expects them to be adults while living in contexts that demand they still be children with great care and sensitivity. So relate that to uh, A Wizard of Earthsea. Well, for example, um, uh, Ged, early on, he's just starting to, he discovers that he has um, these magical powers and abilities. She, he learns them from uh, um, his auntie. Um, and that's a whole other issue there. You know, the, the roles, the, the roles of men and, and women, uh, magic users, and so on is a whole other interesting topic. But anyway, early on, here he's, he's just a young boy. Uh, he, he's developing these magical powers, um, learning spells and, and incantations, and so on. Uh, and then there's this threat against uh, his village. Uh, this very barbarous, violent corgs uh, uh, come and invade the village. And he decides to uh, weave a spell that will hide their village in a fog um, and confuse the, uh, the, the warriors coming in, and then his village is able to counterattack and, and destroy them. Um, and uh, unfortunately, there's a kind of a comical scene. His father just wondered, you know, he doesn't like Ged. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. And he's, uh, he's stand- Ged is standing there in the middle of the square, just sort of seems like he's in a, in a trance babbling. And so his father comes up and kind of hits him side of the head and says, you know, if you're not going to do anything other than standing there babbling, you know, get out of the way. Um, but he didn't realize he was actually 
you know, saving the village. So here's this huge responsibility placed on a, 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 you know, a young man who's faced with this you know, impending doom and tragedy. What do I do? And he tries to act uh, in order to save the village. But that raises, in terms of Taoism and Wu Wei, which is sort of uh, acting without acting or trying to maintain the balance, that raises the critical question. Well, is it necessarily bad that the Korgs were coming to destroy the village? On the surface of it, we might see that, well, yeah, this is a terrible violence that, and that's going to happen against these people. They might be slaughtered and so on. But in Wu Wei, one has to ask, uh, or in Taoism, one has to ask, well, maybe there was an inordinate amount of good that this particular act of evil is actually counterbalancing. Why must he act in that particular instance? Um, and that's the question Ged rightly asks throughout the, the novel. Uh, but an but there's no answer. Unfortunately, he finds no clear answer. And I think that's uh, an interesting tension, tension in the text that uh, Le Guin never really addresses, and most of her critics don't address either. It's like, well, how does he know when to act, and why can't anyone on this view, on this dualistic Taoist view, why can't anyone give him a clear answer? Well, we're, we're getting, running a little short of time here, so um, I'm going to let you uh, give us your recommendation if, if you were to pick one book from the, body, from the oeuvre of Le Guin, what would you recommend? Wow, that's because uh, <laughs> she's written so much. That's a very difficult uh, uh, question to answer. If someone is unfamiliar with Le Guin and just wants to get started, definitely the Earthsea. Um, used to be the Earthsea trilogy. Now it's uh, um, the quartet. Um, so definitely the, the Earthsea cycle, for lack of a better term. Definitely uh, read those. Uh, in terms of... Um, some science fiction. I think the left hand of darkness is fascinating. Um, uh, she raises, this is uh, originally published back in 1969, and she actually starts dealing with issues of kind of transgenderism, um, still tying it to biology, uh, not, not a very popular view uh, today. And she did actually get into some trouble with uh, some uh, leftists and feminists and so on for how she treated that subject. But I think it's a fascinating uh, issue, but she's still tying uh, gender identity to uh, biology, which I think is right. Um, uh, the Dispossessed is a fascinating uh, science fiction uh, study of um, challenges and problems with capitalism, uh, but then communism not necessarily being a, 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 a solution to those particular problems. And then she's trying to sort of, she's uh, toying with um, sort of anarchy and syndicalism and so on. So that might be an interesting uh, uh, thing as well. Um, Compass Rose uh, is a collection of fascinating stories. So it's really, it's, it's, it's really hard to, to pin it down. If you're interested in, in, in more fantasy, definitely check out Earthsea. Uh, or science fiction, check out um, Left Hand of Darkness and Dispossessed. Terrific. David, David Hogsett from Grove City College, I thank you so much for spending time with us today to uh, give us a wonderful primer on the fiction of Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, we've left out her poetry and her essays and all of the wonderful interviews that she's done over the years, but I thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you uh, about the Ursula K. Le Guin. Okay, sir. Well, for this week's Upstream, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and we'll talk to you next week. And that concludes today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, 
visit our site at acton.org. While you're there, swing by our events page to register for our upcoming events, including the lecture series event on Whitaker Chambers Witness for the 21st Century. Lastly, if you have questions for the Radio Free Acton team, if you would like answered in future podcast segments, leave a message at 888-705-4180 or email us at rfa at acton.org. This episode was produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.